We're moving through steadily through the book of Philippians. We're into week 10. And I have absolutely loved this. And I don't know that you all have, but I have loved it, right? And I've loved it because when we study scripture from beginning to end, we look at a letter like Philippians, we start in verse 1 and we get all the way through verse 4, right? We go verse by verse by verse. It adds such depth for me. Because normally, in my, even in my own time with the Lord, I, I get to pick and choose things. I'm looking at this, I'm looking at that, and, and I think a lot is lost when we don't study Scripture in context. But I've loved it. Now, I know that for some of you, it's like, man, we are never going to get out of Philippians. We're going to get out of it eventually, right? But we're going to get there. It's going to end some point in time. I don't know that you've loved it as much as I have, but I've loved it for that reason. Now, Here's the thing, is that most of us have really short attention spans. This isn't an indictment, this is just true. We have very short attention spans, not just like sitting in a room, but like for things. We want what's next, right? We want that next series. It's why any book you read on preaching will say, if you're going to do a series, keep it to six weeks, because people won't follow anything longer than the six weeks. They need the next big thing with fancy slides and cool titles and all that. And we just, just sort of not what we're doing. We are engaging in a journey through the book of Philippians, and journeys are long. And journeys are weary. And sometimes you're on a journey and you want to be done. But the reality is, is that the process is what is amazing. Because it's not what you, where you get to at the end. It's what you went through along the way. It's a difference in a trip and a journey. I've talked about this before. A trip has a beginning and an end. You know what you're going to do. You gear up. You make decisions. And you leave. And the entire point of a trip is how you arrive at the destination. What happens when you get there? We're going to Disney. So we've got our plane tickets. We've got our things. We fly. And the whole point is to get to Disney and have time. A journey, on the other hand, is everything that happens in between. In fact, sometimes on a journey, you don't even know where you're going. You just know that you're traveling, and it's the stories that you tell along the way. It's the encounters that you make. It's that sort of epic thing that goes, and that's really what we're doing. We are journeying through the book of Philippians, and we're discovering along the way. I have not planned all these messages out to a T. In fact, each week I look at how far I think we can get, and so we're journeying, discovering new things as we go. This book of Philippians is, is powerful because Paul is challenging the church, and it's a great word for our little church because Paul's speaking to a group of believers just like us, huddled together, small, right, from all different walks of life, and he's telling them some pretty amazing things. He's saying, look, we, I want you to live in humility and unity, and you know why? Because when you live in humility and in unity, right, you can live and push the mission of the church well. And he talked about the mission of the church being to, love, to live and love and think like Jesus. But when you're off chasing your own thing about me and what's in it for me and doing this for me, the church ceases to become effective. So he's talking to the the, the Philippine church about living in humility, living in unity, and pushing the mission of the church. And today, Paul's going to begin the process of wrapping the letter up. He actually starts the beginning of chapter 3 with the word, finally. The problem is he's got two chapters to go. So, and I really, have you ever, you know, when you're talking to someone and you're going to wrap it up or you're writing a letter, not that anybody writes letters anymore, but if you wrote a letter and you're like, okay, and my last thing, and then it just keeps going. I was thinking about it in terms of this. If I had to write Meredith, my wife, a final letter, like just, I knew that I was not going to talk to her again for whatever reason, something was happening, tragic or whatever, and I'd write her a final letter, how would I begin to really wrap that up? Like what? Could you ever? I mean, I would just want to keep going and going and going. And that's kind of what happens with Paul here. He is in prison, right? Most likely awaiting his execution, although he feels and believes that God is going to release him and he's going to eventually see the Philippians again. But somewhere in there, he's probably thinking, this could be the last letter they get from me. And I love these people dearly. And I'm giving them some great wisdom and instruction. And, and, and I want to start wrapping it up. And as he starts wrapping it up, he realizes there's more and more and more that he just wants to tell them. Because that's the way I would be. I would just want to say, man, just one more thing, one more thing. 
Remember this. Remember how much I love you. Remember how much I care for Remember, Just remember these things. And that's what Paul does. He spends the first two chapters talking about the call and the role of the church. And now he's going to begin to shift to a much more kind of intentional framework of good um, teaching, doctrinal teaching, foundational teaching. In other words, build your life on these things. So it's a shift from the channels of the church to how the church and individuals begin to live. Good, solid theology. And that's what he's going to do today. So if you've got your Bible in chapter 3, I want you to flip to verse 1. Two things I want you to keep in mind that we take for granted. The first one is this. 2,000 years ago, good teaching, right, was hard to find. Now, good teaching, I'm using the word good in a different way. We use the word good teaching when we think about church as, as the word entertainment. So when I say, man, that, if you tell me that teaching is good, most of the time what you mean is that teaching is entertaining, right? Um, that preaching is good, it's entertaining. And I hear this sometimes where people are like, hey, Trev, man, you are a good teacher. And what people really mean by that typically is, Trev, I usually fall asleep in church. But you keep me awake because people will tell you that. Well, I'm, you're the only person I've ever not fallen asleep to in church. You're a good teacher. <laughs> Thank you, I think, you know. Because we attribute good to entertainment. It's just the way our culture is, right? But when I say good, I'm not talking about entertaining. I'm talking about solid, good theologically, Bible-based teaching, Right? In those days, good teaching, solid, non-corrupt theological teaching was really hard to find. Now, you've got to remember, there was no Bible that existed 2,000 years ago. It's not like you could go and say, well, that sounds a little funny. Let me check my Bible. All that existed was letters on parchment, Paul's letter written on a scroll that one church in Philippi would hold together and they would hold it sacred and they would pass it around. They would share it with each other. But this was all that there was. And if someone could, they would take time and they would copy it and there would be two. But that's about as deep and about as far as they got. So good teaching was really hard to find. The apostles were in short supply and in high demand. They were traveling all over the world, right? There was just a handful of them. And Paul was discipling and bringing people up, but it was like Timothy and Titus and a few of these guys coming up piece by piece. It wasn't as readily available as it is for us today. We didn't have, they don't have 1,600 churches in every corner like we do in the city. You couldn't just jump online and podcast whoever your favorite preacher is um, from all over the world. Those, the teaching was hard to come by. So the first thing is that good, solid, non-corrupt theology kind of teaching was hard to find. The second thing we've got to remember is this. Bad theology or bad teaching was rampant. It was running wild. It was running wild because this. There was no generational Christianity. These were all first kind of generation, first come Christians. These were people that had given their life to Christ. Paul had traveled through town or somebody had traveled through town. They'd heard about Jesus. They surrendered their life. They'd been baptized. Life was different. And Paul would leave a few leaders in charge and then he would move on. And you're left going, okay, so what's next? No follow-up Bible study. No series one, two, three, four of this kind of study. No going to Mardell's and picking up how to be a good Christian. You were living on your own and people would walk in and they'd go, they come in from out of town, they'd be like, oh, you're a Christian, me too. Well, I was just traveling from Rome or from whatever city, from Corinth. And, and you know what I heard? I heard that if you're a Christian in order to do that well, you had to do these things too. And, and you don't have any kind of framework to bounce those off of. So you're going, oh, oh, really? You mean in, in order to be a good Christian, I've got to wear, I've got to dress that way or wear this hat too? Okay. Okay. So you're hearing that and you're going, man, okay. So, and so theology, bad theology was rampant. The majority of Paul's letters, all except Philippians, 
are written to address corrupt theology that had infiltrated its way into those churches. Read them. The letter to the Colossians, the Corinth, the Galatian letters. All those letters that Paul wrote were written to address bad theology that had entered its way into the church. The Philippian letter seems to be the only one that doesn't really target that corrupt theology. But the rest, they all target going, why have these things entered into your thinking, your church, your mindset? Now, we have to keep that in mind, okay, because it's the framework of what Paul's about to do. Um, He's about to tell the church that they're going to have to be ready um, and be on their guard. And so we take these things for granted. Number one, because most of us aren't biblically sound enough to know the difference between good and bad theology, right? And number two, because we want to be entertained. And, and Paul's going to basically paint some lines today that say, open your eyes because it matters. So let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 3. If you've got it. Um, if you don't, I've got it and I'll read it to you. Chapter 3. Paul's going to wrap up this in the next two chapters saying, finally, right? So where are going to start? Finally. So let's take a moment. Let's just pray quickly. Ask that God would illuminate our hearts so that we can study his word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. I thank you that your word is living and active. As you tell us, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, this is true. It is truth, and it is from you. God, I pray that as we encounter it today, you would change us. And uh, Lord, that you would do something mighty in us. Take a moment and just ask God to teach you today. Just ask God to teach your heart. God, my words will always and forever fall short. So, God, I pray that you would teach through your word alone. Um, and we ask this in the perfect life-giving name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so as always happens to me, I get myself in a bit of a pickle. We got, I'm going to have to fly through this, some of this stuff because I'm going to try and do a whole six verses today. But they're good. But we're going to try and motor through it because I know some of you are like, hey, bro, we've got to get out of here. Okay, so here's the deal. Paul says this. Paul says, finally, right? I'm wrapping everything up. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And we're going to pick up next week there because it's a double thought. So if you're hearing this week, you're going to want to hear next week because Paul's going to answer a lot of things that we live with. But Paul says, listen, finally, I'm going to wrap everything up to you. Here's my one good thought, right? If you have my final thought, here's what it's going to be. And here's where he starts. Rejoice in the Lord. See, Paul understood that joy was a paramount piece of the gospel. Joy was paramount. And he's not talking about some kind of fake, pretend, plastic smile joy where I pretend that I'm not struggling. Paul is writing to a very, kind of a very realistic way to a group of very hard-pressed, impoverished, persecuted, struggling Christians in Philippi. It was not an easy time to be a believer. They were being persecuted. Most of them lived in poverty. They were being pushed on every side. And they were living with all kinds of anxiety. Remember, they were anxious because their partner, Epaphroditus, that we talked about last week, he was over with Paul, and they all thought he was dying. They also had a ton of anxiety because Paul, their missionary, the guy that God had used to lead them to Christ, was now facing prison and possible execution. They've got anxiety. They are living in poverty, and they are persecuted, and their problems are very real. Paul's not saying, look, have joy, 
because those things don't exist. A lot of times in our Christian lives, we feel like in order to be living a Christian life, we have to be happy. We have to be living with some kind of fake plastic joy that says, oh, my problems aren't real. You know what? Your problems are real, and God knows they're real. And Paul's even acknowledging that they're real, and he says, listen, have joy, rejoice in the Lord. What Paul is saying is this, the joy that you will encounter will not come from the world, but it will come from the Lord because God is bigger than the sum of all your problems. It's not that your problems aren't real and they're not painful. It's that God is bigger than the sum of all of them. That God's truth is bigger than that. Because what they're getting ready to come up against is a group of people that are telling them they can find joy in something else. And Paul's saying that if you seek joy, If you seek joy in anything other than the Lord, you will always find yourself empty. Paul's basically saying, listen, church, fight for joy. Fight for it. But you've got to fight for it amongst the problems in your life by putting it in the right categories. If you are looking for joy and happiness in any other category of your life than the Lord, you will always wind up empty. If you're trying to become a better you by doing these three things in 2013, by engaging in more Bible study, by praying more, by doing more, by actively doing things, you will always wind up empty. Paul's saying, listen, joy will come from the Lord, rejoice in it. And he starts it off this way. But then he does something very strange. He moves into a segment that doesn't seem to be coupled well with joy. Listen to what he moves into. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It's not right a bad thing for me to write these things to you again. All right, I want you to hear them again, the same things. It's a safeguard for you. Paul's a good teacher. You know what good teachers do? They repeat themselves. You know why they repeat themselves? Because we're hard-headed and we don't get it and we don't listen. The good teachers will say the same things over and over and over again in a bunch of different ways, right? It's just, if you walk out of there one year going, he said the same exact things. And I'm just now getting it because good teachers, they find points of truth and they reiterate them. And Paul's doing that. He's going, listen, you've heard me say this. I've probably even written it to you before. I probably even said it when I was there. Timothy said it. The apostles have said it. So it's good because I want you to hear it because it's safeguard. It will guard your heart. Listen to that. Watch out for us. This is rejoicing in the Lord. You're going to hear these things again. Listen carefully. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. How does this fit in with Paul's conversation about joy? Wouldn't it say that Paul wants to be talking about something else that would be joyful? How does he move into this sort of conversation about false teaching, which is what he's getting ready to get into? Because Paul knows this, bad teaching, bad theology, false teaching, right? It corrupts and kills joy. Because it tells you that you can find joy in other things than Christ alone. It tells you that you can find joy in yourself, that you can find joy in what you do and how hard you work. And Paul's saying that kind of corrupt theology, that kind of bad teaching will kill joy because there is no real joy apart from Jesus Christ. There's temporal eternal happiness that we paint over things, but that's not joy. So Paul says, listen, what I want you to hear is this, watch out for those dogs. Now, Paul's actually addressing a specific group of false teachers, and they were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians, Jewish people that said, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah, that also believed that not only themselves, but that all Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts, had to keep and adhere all the Mosaic ritualistic law. So they had to be circumcised, keep all the food laws and all the other ritual ceremonial laws. Those were Judaizers. They believed Jesus. You are saved by grace and keeping the law. All right? 
And it was running rampant. The entire book of Galatians is written to kind of compound and fight against the teaching of these men. And they'd roll into town and they'd find the Christians and they'd say, Gentiles, we are so glad you are now one of us, right? So that's great, but here's kind of how you really have to do to be a Christian. You've got to do that and you've got to be circumcised and keep all the food laws. And if you don't, that's not really what it means to be a Christian. You're not a Christian. And Paul says, I want you to pay attention to this. Because there are some very specific things that are really dangerous here. And he's going to remind us about three things that I'm going to try and do really quickly. He's going to first remind us that false teaching is real and it's dangerous. He calls them dogs. Watch out for those dogs. You know why he calls them dogs? It's because it's a really derogatory term that was used, that the Jews used to talk about Gentiles. So anybody non-Jewish, the Jewish people would call them dogs. Now for us, it loses a little bit of its meaning because we're like, hey dog, what's up? It's like something good, right? Early service, somebody goes, don't ever say that again. And so, but I mean, it loses a little bit of meaning. What Paul does is he says, watch out for those dogs, meaning it's not you that are the derogatory name, it's them. He actually turns it on him and he says, those people that are practicing this and, and telling you this, they're the dogs, right? And they are evil doers. They are men who do evil. And you want to know why? Because they are teaching, they are teaching a gospel that is not Jesus Christ alone. They are teaching a gospel that is Jesus Christ and something else. And that is heretical, and it is heresy, and it is pure evil. Now, for you and I, that may not sound like much. I mean, God sounds a lot of pretty extreme, Paul, really. I mean, evil? Yes. Because anything that adds to or takes away from Christ's perfect act on the cross and resurrection is sin. And Paul says those men are evil because you cannot add to or take away from the perfect act of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. They're evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. This is actually a kind of a reference to the idea of circumcision. Because the pagans around the Jewish people would engage in circumcision once the Jewish people did it as a superstitious kind of thing. Well, no, they're God's people. They do circumcision. We're going to do that on ourselves so that maybe it'll work for us. They mutilated their flesh that way. And Paul says, that's all you're doing. When you require someone to become circumcised or obey the laws in addition to following Christ, you're mutilating your body. It's just not even true, and it's evil, right? So Paul kind of sums it up by saying this, and it's really easy for us to look at this and say, well, Trevor, that isn't, I mean, that's great, and I'll be on my guard for that, but I mean, that doesn't really happen. I mean, you know, there's not really that going on right now, I mean, but here's the reality is that you've got to look at the bigger picture of what Paul's talking about. False teaching is real, it's dangerous, and it's spilling out of a ton of our pulpits in our churches, both here in the city and across the United States. Because false teaching that teaches anything other than grace, the faith, their grace, and salvation in Christ alone is heretical, right? But it's not that we hear that all the time. We don't go to our churches and hear that anybody can get to heaven. We go to our churches and hear is this. It's Jesus plus. <coughs> Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus more prayer, Jesus plus giving, Jesus plus Bible study, Jesus plus sacrifice, Jesus and, Jesus and. And we carry this weight around and we say, Jesus, I believe you've forgiven me, but I know I need to do this before I can truly live in your forgiveness. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Jesus' work for you on the cross was absolutely perfect. That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are set free. It is not, there is nothing that you can do to add to it or take away from it. Because to do so, you're saying that, God, your work through Christ on the cross was not perfect enough. It was not all. And that's what the Judaizers were saying. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus. 
But remember, you've also got to do this. Say these prayers, do this thing, and believe in yourself. More garbage spills out of our pulpits telling us that we can be a better us by doing more. You want to be a better you in 2013? Do these three things. And they're not big crazy things. They're believe in you. Do this for you. Take care of you. Heresy and sin. Because anything you put confidence in other than Jesus Christ alone, right? Putting confidence in the flesh is a lie. So Paul says, false teaching runs rampant and it's dangerous. It's just not, it's not just not cute. But most of us have trained our ears to hear preachers talk about funny stories or things and we, we kind of gloss over the bad theology. Number one, because we're not in tuning up with scripture to know it's bad theology, right? And two, because we're able to wash over things to be entertained. But Paul's saying, listen, false teaching is real. Pay attention to it. So he reminds us of that. The second thing he says is this, I want you to remember who you are. So he says, listen, it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus, we who put no confidence in the flesh. I wish I had two, three weeks to explain all this because Paul gives a four-piece definition of the Christian life. And I would spend all morning talking about it if we had any more time. Because if you want to know what a Christian life is, what the Christian life is, here's what Paul says it is. It's four things. And I want you to remember who you are. He says, listen, first and foremost, it is we who are the circumcision. You know what that means? Back in the day when God gave Abraham and he told him that his descendants would be God's people, and he gave him the kind of symbol of circumcision, it was to separate God's people from the rest of the world. They would literally circumcise the boys of of Abraham's people, the descendants, so that they would be able to be distinguished from the rest of the world because they were gods. What happened through Jesus Christ on the cross is that we no longer are outwardly marked, but we are inwardly marked by the Holy Spirit. We have become the circumcision. We no longer have to do things to perform a certain way so that we can be known as gods, but Paul says that our circumcision takes place in our heart. We have become the circumcision. In other words, he's looking at this group of Gentiles saying, no, you are gods. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you are his. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to go through some kind of painful ritual at age 37 because you just got saved to show that you're God's. You have been marked inwardly. We are the true circumcision, right? He says, we are the real circumcision, the true circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. For those of you that know Scripture well, you realize that this is actually a reference to a conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember that story? She's leaning against the well. The disciples come up and they find her there and, or they, they go to the well and, and they go to get food and Jesus stays at the well and he encounters this Samaritan woman. And, and after kind of having this incredible encounter where she asks him to help him draw water and Jesus says, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for water and I would give you water that sprang eternal, right? And then he goes on to tell her about the fact that he knows that she's not married she's got, or that she's got five husbands and the guy she's not living with not currently her husband, all these kind of things. And she says this, she says, I know that you're a prophet or something. She goes, I've got a big question, and that's the Samaritans. My forefathers tell us that we have to worship right here on this mountain in Samaria because this is where some really cool things happen in the Old Testament. But the Jewish people say that we have to go to Jerusalem to worship God there. She basically says, where does God exist, on this mountain or in the temple in Jerusalem? You know what Jesus says to her? He says, woman, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks those who worship by the Spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying is this, that we don't go anywhere to worship the Lord. 
that through Christ's death and resurrection, we worship by the Spirit, which means we worship here in this place by the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. God's presence is not contained here. That when Christ was crucified, the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, thus giving us free access to holy God, right? So that God is not contained in the temple, God is not contained on a mountain, but that God, we have access to God in our hearts. What he's telling those folks to remember is when these people come and tell you that you have to do certain things to find God, to discover God, remember that God is within us. Holy Spirit dwells in us. We worship, right? We worship by spirit and truth. He also says we glory in Christ Jesus. What that means is that as a follower of Christ, we glory in the fact that Jesus paid it all. I alluded to it earlier, that his sacrifice on the cross was totally sufficient for all of my sin and all of my struggle. Every piece of it. Jesus paid it all, and that is where glory is. It's not that Jesus paid part of it or some of it. You know how bad that hymn would be if it was, and Jesus paid some of it? I mean, that would be terrible, right? He paid it all. And that's what we find glory in, is the fact that I can do absolutely nothing. And Paul couples that by saying, and we put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, you can't do it. So quit trying to clean up your life, fix your life, pray your way out of your life, do enough good things to kind of counteract all the bad things you've done. Quit putting confidence in your ability to do anything. The first time you hear somebody say, you want to be a better you, do this, you can recognize that you will fail. You put zero confidence in the flesh. Why? Because where do we put our confidence? In Jesus alone. I recognize that. Man, I, God, I could do nothing without you. Nothing. No confidence in me. Listen to how Paul wraps this up. You don't believe me? He says, false teaching is real and it's dangerous. Remember who you are. He goes, you don't remember? I want you to remember who I was. Paul says, you want to think that any of this stuff worked? Listen to what my life was like. He said, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul goes, if you think it would work, that we can believe in Jesus and do some other things, or that we can live in this sort of ritualistic life and believe all in our own ability. He goes, if you think that would work, there is no other human on earth that should have been able to attain that than me. And you want to know why? Because listen to how I was raised. I was born on the eighth day I was circumcised into the tribe of Benjamin, meaning this, I was born correctly and rightly, and I was circumcised, and it was right. And I know my ancestry. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Most of you Jewish people don't even know yours. Why? Because when we were exiled, all those records were lost. But I know mine. And I know my great-grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-grandfather. And I am a Hebrew among Hebrews. And I did it all. And he goes, I was the right birth at the right time. And I lived correctly. And he goes on to say this. He goes, not only that, he goes... In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, meaning this, that I carried out the law. I was of the order of the tribe that literally knew the law backwards and forwards. I memorized every letter of it, and I kept it, and I knew it. He goes, you want to know the law? I knew the law, and I know it better than you know it. And he goes, not only that, you want to talk about passion? My passion for the law led me to arrest and kill Christians. I persecuted the church. That's how deeply I believe in the stuff that you're hearing. The law would set us free, and I killed those that would say anything else about it. And he goes on to say, you want to know about that sort of kind of zeal for it? Listen to this. I got a legalistic righteousness, and you know what about it? It was faultless, meaning I kept every single letter. I didn't even drop one. Everything that law said to do, I did. Every way there was supposed to be a knot tied, I tied it. Every step you were supposed to take, I took. Every piece of clothing you were supposed to wear, I wore. Next week, you know what Paul's going to say? 
and this is going to be awesome next week, he goes, and all of that I consider lost compared to knowing Jesus. But Paul says, you think this stuff would work? Then look at me. If it would work for anyone, it would work for me. But it doesn't. You want to know why? Because it's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus me, plus my ability, plus what I can do. It's confidence in Christ alone. This morning, if you are sitting here and you are putting confidence or hope or anything in any place else but Jesus alone, you will always wind up empty. And it's corrupt. Jesus is the only one that can break your life, your bondage, your sin, your struggle, your hurt, your heartache, and your pain. There is no other way. And he will do it completely and perfectly. Jesus' work on the cross was perfect and complete. And he invites us into relationship with him to set us free. Good theology is important because it keeps us from bad theology. This morning, let's put our hope in Christ alone. Let's pray.